Welcome to Every Business Counts, the podcast which shows how money and numbers can support you to build a sustainable business. My name is Lynn Mann and I'm an accountant and a coach with over 20 years experience. In each episode, I will be exploring how money and your business numbers can help amplify the impact you want to make by focusing on purpose and profit. Because every business counts. Hello and welcome to this episode of Every Business Counts. I'm Lynn Mann and today I have with me Jane Gleason-White. Jane is an award-winning writer and author of four books, including the internationally acclaimed History of Accounting, Double Entry, and its sequel, Six Capitals. Now, Six Capitals is a book that I read a few years ago and it inspired me to re-engage with um, accountancy. It talks about, it brings together accountancy, sustainability, and where we are in the world. Now, Jane has recently released a new version of this book in Australia and New Zealand, and it will be published internationally later in this year. So welcome, Jane, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much, Lynn, and thank you so much for asking me to come here and talk about business and accounting. You are welcome. So what inspired you to write Six Capitals? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I think it was, um, so I, I, I guess what inspired me through the writing of it was the quote I read by Jonathan Watts, in two, who wrote it in 2010 at the um, Nagoya Biodiversity Conference in Japan, and he said that, um, you know, world leaders, religious gurus, um, eco-warriors, the people that we would normally imagine might have um, helped us deal with the clear environmental crises that we're now all facing have failed to do so, but there might be one last hope for life on earth, accountants. So that was just such a radically outrageous thing to say, but but he had such good grounds for saying it that that I came across that at the end of um, writing Double Entry, which is my history of accounting going right yeah. back to the origins of the idea of capital and the Renaissance. Um, but I wasn't able to explore it in that book. So that that was, I guess, my inspiration. But what sort of compelled me to actually write a second book about accounting was the fact that in traditional accounting models, both national and um, corporate and business, nature, you know, the value of the extraordinary natural world that we live in is not counted. It's counted Mm -hmm. as zero. It doesn't exist. And nor does things like women's labour and all the sort of unpaid household um, chores that we all know are so critical now in this exact moment of coronavirus when we're all at home and we're realising the huge power of the natural world and of the domestic sphere. So it's kind of an interesting timing. But so I think I was more, I was, I was inspired by Jonathan Watts quote, just to keep wading through all this sometimes dense and complicated material. But I was more driven by kind of an outrage that there was so much important stuff that just never appeared in uh, the way we value the world. And and I find that, um, really interesting because having studied accountancy um, and I studied business at university, I did find that there were so many decisions which didn't take account of anything else. They were purely based on the numbers. And it's 
something that kind of does really lead to a lot of short-term decision-making um, and an underappreciation of, of everything that we're drawing on. Um, I know in your book, you actually talk about um, Puma and then bringing in um, the full cost of the, the environment. And it's, it was huge as to actually it changed their P&L totally. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the Puma example, well, you know, so um, I'll just say quickly to address, you know, what you said about your realisation that these um, measurements were narrowed to the numbers. Um, you know, so after I was travelling around the world talking about double entry because, you know, it was really the first accessible, probably the first and definitely the first accessible history of accounting. So I talked to a lot of accountants around the world in the wake of that being published and what I discovered was like you, they themselves were all realising that the, the way that they'd been working their traditional models were missing key important things that they needed, you know, especially auditors, they needed to know what, you know, how to value this missing information, you know. Um, so that was also really fascinating to me that accountants themselves were aware that, that what they were doing wasn't telling the whole story of the business. Um, and then so going on to Puma, so in my travels, I spoke to everyone I could, wondering if, you know, the so-called externality, externalities, as um, economists call them, nature in particular, would ever be actually counted by accountants. And in fact, it was in London, you know, in the UK that someone told me, yes, they will, and they've just been done by Puma. And that was in 2012. Um, I'm pretty sure, maybe 2013, and then they did a whole um, environmental costing and the result was once they took out, you know, the, their impact on the natural world and the impact of their suppliers, um, I think was it by a third that their profits were so, cut or maybe two-thirds? I don't have the exact numbers. That's a story from um, Six Capitals. But, yeah, it was hugely significant. Mm. At the time, and still, they use this information, this environmental accounting, they call it environmental profit and loss account, um, only as a kind of internal management exercise to help them, um, you know, to guide them in the, their internal practices, their business practices, and also, I guess, as a marketing exercise. But they didn't actually add it to the um, P&L, so that was never deducted from their profits. Yeah. So their profits remain the same. So it's you know, it's a partial accounting, really. Yeah. So, so really, then, um, it's interesting what you say about accountants actually realizing that that things are missing. But what do you feel has been the impact of businesses focusing purely on short-term profits? Well, I mean, that's such an interesting question because I feel that the very fact of focusing on profit is a short-term thing, just increasingly shorter and shorter term because we do, you know, the quarterly reporting and, you know, tied up with, you know, the casino that is the share market. And, you know, so there's a whole lot of um, structures, financial and economic structures that compel this increasing short-termism. Um, but so I think the focus on purely the profit allows and impels really you know I, I feel for businesses I've spoken to so many they're trapped really in this kind of vicious circle of only thinking about their financial impact because especially if they're corporations and publicly listed that's all that their investors are interested in you know yeah. what's the return on their investment 
Um, but for example, another story I talk about in the book, which um, comes later and it's related to the new corporate form called the Benefit Corporation, you know, the people, the three business partners, friends who um, founded that realized that, you know, so they're sort of new generation entrepreneurs, say they're in their 30s at the time, which was in 2006, they realized that all the benefits that they wanted to build into the so-called DNA of their company, which was um, paying their their workers 10% more um, to produce the sporting goods that they were making and to consider their impact on the environment. So all these things that they thought were built into their business as its kind of soul, when they came to sell the business because they got a very high bid for it, it was actually illegal to have those things in, this is an American business, in the charter of the business. So they couldn't bed them into their business when they sold it because it, they contravened the cardinal law of pretty much every business in the world, which is maximise profit at all costs. So these were taking away from shareholders' profits, um, you know, they would to pay their workers more and to consider the environment were costs that reduced the profits which had an impact on the shareholders. So they realised that there was something fundamentally flawed in the way that corporations are structured. So it's, they're impelled into this kind of short-term profit thing. So, I mean, I guess what's become so clear to me, both in writing Six Capitals, um, the original book came out in 2014, and then in the six years since when I've been around the world talking about it, is just how much these problems that we think are, you know, like a matter of each business just pursuing its short-term profit, but how much these problems are part of this whole system that, um, you know, is huge and, and has to change at every level, you know. So, for example, the nature of the corporation really, I discovered, has to be changed. That's a long answer to your question, but, um, you know, to so to focus on short-term profits means that businesses operate without considering the impact on the environment and the communities and their societies and the workers in their supply chains. You know, they they... They don't have to. They're outside the traditional financial accounting entity, these things. You know, the pollution of a river or their carbon emissions or, or the waste that they produce, none of those things fall within the traditional um, financial accounting model. And that's become a huge problem that even accountants, not even accountants, but particularly accountants are aware of. And, and that was kind of the beautiful irony of this for me is that the people who are traditionally mocked and scoffed and considered mm -hmm. to be most boring people on earth are actually the people at, you know, the front line of this problem because they're seeing the way that these values don't translate into the numbers that they're working with to value business. Yeah, and it's really, it's really interesting. And just going back to what you were saying there about the, you know, it's a, his at every level, things have to change. So you have... Um, and I know there's with the in the US you have the benefit um, courts and B Corp itself is actually becoming quite a um, a big movement, um, and and other countries are, are bringing in things. So it's no longer the choice between say being a charity or being um, a company, but effectively what you're saying is so an entrepreneur creates their business and runs it in a way that um, works for them. They're taking into account all of 
you know, things that are important to them. So paying people well, understanding that the products they're using are the right products and what the impact is. But as soon as they come to sell, actually everything could just fall away and the company could, you know, the, the whole values would not necessarily be continued if the um, organization buying it or whatever it is doesn't respect those and want to continue them because the, the maxim is you should be making maximum profits. Yeah, for the shareholders. And in fact, it's not even just if you come to sell a business, it's if you come to list it on a stock exchange okay. where, you know, so then there becomes the challenge of, you know, convincing potential investors that the returns that you're making on, say, natural capital and social capital, so the benefits that you're bringing into your local community by employing, for example, there's a wonderful story out of New York where there was a bakery that employed people um, straight out of prisons and things to help them rehabilitate into their communities, Um, you know, or, you know, companies who work to... um, you know, rehabilitate a river or, you know, clean up a river, those sorts of things um, have not appealed to people looking to invest their money for maximum return. So there's a whole, you know, so there's interesting new, um, you know, financial um, investment advisors, for example, one I spoke to um, in Wall Street who are trying to make the argument that these other benefits, for example, to the environment or to local communities, the greater um, social world, these benefits, they might, investors might not see them on a return on their own capital, but they will see them in the long-term viability of the business, which will be soundly embedded in its community and its natural world and it won't be destroying the river that it depends on, for example, to make beer or, you know, a soft drink. Um, and it won't be destroying the community that it draws um, its workers from and its suppliers and its um, customers. So, you know, I guess it's just a way of businesses seeing themselves in the broader context of their world and persuading all of us who invest our money that it's wiser to take um, less of a financial return because in the long term it's a benefit to all of us in these other as yet uncounted um, values, which we all know really acutely right now are important. Like how much do we value our communities and how much do we value the green that we live in? You know, these are critical right now. Totally. Um, And I think it, it is very interesting, as you say, how much we're valuing these things right now, because, you know, if you look in the UK, people are really valuing being able to go out into nature and and really seeing the benefits of taking walks. And there's a program here called Spring Watch, which I was watching last night, and they actually showed the um, scientific um, reasons as to why we should be, how how nature can actually counteract um, all the stress hormones and things like that because oh wow and it's it's just showing how when we're out we pick up on the uh, I can never remember what it is but there's basically some chemicals that trees produce which actually help reduce us and even just being out and walking we're starting to bring ourselves down so you know one of the thing another thing I saw yesterday was you know the um 
was talking about this time, the number of trees that have still been felled. Um, and it's, it's kind of like we're not valuing that, that benefit. Um, and I know in your book you talk about a specific UK example of, is it Smith, Smithy Wood? Oh, yeah, Smithy's yes. Wood, yeah. Smithy's Wood, yeah, in Sheffield, yeah. Yeah, which was a impact, going back to what you were saying about community, so it was a huge thing within the community for this wood, and it was ancient woodland that they wanted to, um, developers wanted to remove. And again, it's how do we value that? You can't just, it has so much more of an intrinsic value than just saying, well, each tree is worth this, this, and this, and we'll plant new ones elsewhere exactly Um, and that's yeah oh I was just going to say in light of that and reflecting on what you just said about going into nature now and and the sort of psychological benefits um because you also mentioned earlier um the fact that clean air has been a big um distinguisher of who of which nations are doing well and which aren't at the moment and that's another you know benefit of trees that you know produce um oxygen for us to breathe so you know and and obviously having clean air is hugely significant right now because this is a respiratory disease so you know um there are just so many uncounted things i mean the the interesting thing though is that these environmental things are beginning to be counted because they're you know physical measures like you know carbon per square meter or um you know the clean of water, um, biodiversity, they're even beginning to measure in forests. Um, but yeah, they're not part of our traditional measures and, and they're still not, you know, and I believe the Smith, going back to the Smithy Wood, I believe, you know, when I was looking to update my new book and um, researching into it, I believe that's still just on hold, you know, that that still hasn't been resolved, that debate. So yeah, I mean, we need ways of making the arguments for the benef- the absolutely critical benefits of these places because what they wanted to replace it with was a turnpike in a motorway, you know, yeah. which is what we need less of, actually. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. And so we've talked about in here that actually you've given some great examples of how just the, the different types of environment the the impact of the ecosystem actually if we think of a business as actually an ecosystem or rather it just being um by itself and and having that power that it can do what it wants um but really looking at you know we've mentioned um, natural capital and you've talked about kind of the almost the community and the social capital um but what are the other forms of capital and how can we use these within an organisation to help us um, make decisions about what's the best thing for um, our business? Yeah, well, that's um, a very interesting question. So, yeah, just briefly, the the six capitals of the title um, of my book um, come from actually a, a initiative that was created in the UK, a global initiative, but um, housed in London, um, called the International Integrated Reporting um, Council. And they proposed in 2013 a new model of accounting that drew on, that, you know, asked businesses to consider six different capitals. Financial capital, which is the traditional one, um, and manufactured capital, which is uh, the built um, you know, infrastructure and buildings and plant, you know, so these two are familiar from 
um, traditional accounting. And then the four new ones are intellectual capital, which are things like um, intellectual property, property, any, any of the products of the human mind, so software and IP, intellectual property, um, and books and creative products. So all the, I mean, I think of it as the products of the human mind. And then there's human capital, which is the workers in an organisation. So that's the internal staff. And so that's, you know, in considering human capital, it's asking businesses to think about the well-being of their workers and the value that they bring to a company. Um, and, you know, so it goes into the, the conditions of their work. You know, what is the office space like? Is it you know, are you investing in their education? Their, you know, are they being given the opportunity to, um, you know, in, enhance their skills every now and then, go out and do courses? So it's it's all about investing in the actual workers of the business. Um, and then the, the other, the last two are the bigger ones. I guess they're the ones that I'm particularly interested in. Um, they're the sort of the external world to the um, business and they are, society and the environment. So, and when I think of society in terms of a business, um, I think it's most useful to think of it just in terms of your local community. So it's it's like the sort of environment that, that you operate in, um, in terms of, you know, how you work within, you know, your actual local community, but also how you impact um, through your supply lines and things on other communities around the world. For example, you know, there are some examples in the book about the punitive work conditions in, mm. you know, the Apple factories in China, for example. And, um, you know, we all know the example of Rana Plaza where in Bangladesh yeah. where the building collapsed. So we, we know that a lot of the benefits that we get with cheap clothing and cheap um, computer products and iPhones and things are all only cheap because a lot of humans are suffering um, in their wages and conditions. So the, the social capital asks businesses to consider their supply lines and how their, um, you know, how their practices in the wealthier centres of the world are impacting on the workers in, you know, the um, not even developing but, I don't know what the, the politically correct word is to say now, but, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the less wealthy centres of the world where all the manufacturing goes on these days. Um, and the environment is similarly um, local, like how are you impacting your local river, your local garbage collection service? Are you recycling? Mm -hmm. You know, are you limiting your water? Are you, um, you know, have you got the best sort of green electricity that you can um, get you know so i guess it's looking at your actual business operation and it's also looking at your supply line and seeing well am i drawing on a business that's cutting down orangutan forests in indonesia or am i getting my um water from a community in you know some state which is suffering from a drought and you know so therefore i should be thinking more constructively more creatively about about where I draw my resources from and what are the circumstances on the ground where those resources are, you know, extracted. I'm just going to give a really good example of a contemporary um, 
benefit corporation. Yeah, I was I was just thinking in in saying all of that, it reminded me of, um, and it's so apt uh, to mention, but it's it's a benefit corporation I came across after Six Capitals was started. Only um, was launched in two thousand and sixteen, I think. No, two thousand and thirteen. It's called Who Gives a Crap, and it's now international. And I don't know if it's in the UK. It's certainly in America. Pretty sure it's around the world at the moment. Um, it started in Melbourne by three um, young men, young entrepreneurs who decided or who found out that I think it's like 800 children a day die in the world from poor sanitation and um, illnesses related to poor hygiene in toilets and things, you know, and illnesses related to diarrhea, basically. And so they thought that they would create a business that was related to hygiene. So they created a toilet paper business and they give 50% of their profits to um, organisations that work to improve the hygiene and water um, resources of communities around the world, mostly in Africa and Asia. Um, so it's this really inspiring, amazing organisation. So um, the way when they tell their story, um, anyone who hears it, me, um, cannot resist buying their toilet paper um, because it's it, none of it is it's all from recycled waste so they don't cut down any trees to make their toilet paper it has no chemicals no artificial scents or um, flavors or anything and it's very soft and um, they home deliver in boxes of 48 blah I mean I'm, I'm not investing in their company or anything but I'm just I was blown away when I heard them present live um, but it's very appropriate now because I know that the UK, like Australia, has had a sort of run on toilet paper, which yeah. is just ludicrous. <laughs> and so their, um, the demand for their toilet paper went up 1,100% in March this year because wow. of coronavirus. So I guess they're a sort of perfect example of a business that's thinking, so it's good on the environment because it's 100% recycled and not cutting down any trees it has an amazing kind of social impact because it's devoting or donating 50% of its profits wow, to, um, you know, poor and impoverished communities that suffer from poor hygiene and bad water. And, you know, so that is, is a story. They are not numbers. The only number I've mentioned is the extraordinary figure of 1,100% of increased demand for its products. Um, which it's now able to meet again after a temporary kind of stall. Um, so that's a company that is a benefit company. In other words, it's been through the rigorous um, certification pro, um, process of examining its business and asking where it can contribute to the world beyond its business. And in their case, it's the environment and its communities um, for hygiene. Yeah. So these are the new things that are happening in this new world of, of multiple accounting and different yeah. capitals. Yeah. I love actually, the, you know, when you, you were telling that story and it is a story, it's stories like that that inspire people, but also make people want to buy the product and engage with the product. And I think that's kind of the difference I see when you see these, these smaller organizations there's um uh, a company in scotland which is is also a social enterprise and it's called brugada and basically they um they 
make beer. They actually do it through uh, another brewery. Um, but the profits go to um, providing clean water in villages in Malawi. And um, a friend of mine uh, interviewed the co-founder. And what was really fascinating was that he still saw the value of his numbers because I think often people don't see that. They, They kind of just get focused on what they want to do. But for him, it was all about telling a story. And the more he could see within the the PL, the more he could actually see as to how he could improve the world. But as you say, it's looking beyond the actual traditional um, accounting system and looking at actually what how are you impacting society. But those kind of stories are the ones that engage people. And I, I know at the end of um, Six Capitals in the um, new version you you talk about actually you know would you want to invest in a an organization that is going back to examples you know cutting down the the rainforests or would you want to invest in an organization that's found a different way to create toilet paper without um cutting down the trees and there is a i think a, an appetite within um individuals now to to change the way they've looked at things and to actually change how maybe they're they're investing or change how which products they're they're buying Um, and I think it's those changes which will help move things forward because one of the things that companies I feel use as a um kind of a reason not for changing is, well, there's customer demand. And I heard that recently when somebody was talking about um, plastic bottles and how you'd have thought with the, in the West, you know, I know in the UK, there's a big thing about don't, you know, you don't use single um, plastics anymore. And you'd have thought, therefore, that would have put pressure on the the bottle, plastic water bottles to be, um, to change the way they're working but actually what they found is that they've gone into new markets so they have gone into say the um, Asia and Africa and so they all they've done is simply find a new marketplace so it it is that kind of what is it going to take to change the way that we think and the belief that financial capital takes priority over everything else well that is the million dollar question (laughs) um you know i and as you say these things change is happening and they're amazing entrepreneurs and i've met them on my travels including in the uk and scotland as you say i mean that include i know the uk includes that but you know they're often in the margins um because i guess that's where they can afford to be but um you know, so I, we need more than this incremental change, though, entrepreneur by entrepreneur, business by business. And it's been really interesting also thinking about, you know, so we all have to change the way that we think. And it has to happen at every level. And so I, I don't think there's one way that this can happen. I just think everyone in their own lives, in their own businesses, as themselves, as consumers and investors, we have to make these decisions all the time. We have to demand them from our governments and from our you know, the companies that we do business with. But also there's been some interesting 
um, stories that I've come across here and also in the UK, but I'll talk about the Australian examples I know well. There's this very interesting organisation in Australia now called The Field Trip and actually based on um, the capitals I talk about in Six Capitals, it's a guy who runs this um, organisation with children and he introduces the idea of the Six Capitals to children in their school holidays and shows them how they can operate not just, you know, to spend money on something and think about the return on that, but to plant a garden or to look after a snail or to deliver something to a neighbour or, you know, so at a really, he believes that this thinking has to happen at a really, really early age and the children love it and the work they do has been extraordinary. It's been going for six years now and, you know, he's won awards for it and, you know, it's just so beautiful and sometimes he sends me photographs of, you know, what they've done and one child made this beautiful um, garden for a snail to look after the snail in his environment. You know, so that's, I, th I think it really has to happen at that level. It has to happen immediately and we have to be, we have to, you know, because as you have implied through this um, conversation, this idea of financial capital, it's the measure of success. It's all we really have had and it's something that we inherited, for goodness sake, from the 15th century. So it's kind of a bit outdated and we need a new mode and, you know, so examples like who gives a crap that, you know, that's a successful business that's inspiring to everybody because it has this extraordinary story as well as, you know, as you also mentioned in the benefit corporation, they are required to make a return on their capital. And so they, they do also understand the value of financial capital. Um, so there are stories like that. And, you know, so I guess the combination of, of us learning different understandings of success by the pleasure a child might get in helping, you know, a snail in a garden, you know, who knows what that child will do in, you know, when he or she grows up in terms of, you know, rescuing orangutans in a rainforest or, you know, you just, the way that the, that, that opens people's minds to different ways of looking at the world and different way of valuing things. But also I know amazing, inspiring um, people in institutions, academic, um, you know, universities, around the world and one in particular in Australia who are using the six capitals model in their work with accounting students and to get them to do their own accounting of their own lives and think about how they allocate their resources, their time, you know, how they, you know, just to do an actual integrated report, so-called, you know, which is to consider how they address the six capitals in their lives which apparently, so they've been doing this at Monash University in Australia for about three years, and, and it just opens, you know, these young training accountants' minds to the possibility of new sorts of value. And, and it's, they're thriving, and he's won also awards, the um, professor who, who's doing this work. And it's happening in America, it's happening in the UK, because I hear from and meet these people. So I think this is kind of an idea that's, that people want and are waiting to discover because we just haven't had another way to think about it. Yeah. I love the examples you're giving there because, as you say, it's actually it's when we start to educate children in a different way, then we're starting to change the way that generation thinks. Whereas if we keep training them the same way, and that's often one of my frustrations with the school system is that there's still a lot of um, the ways, you know, that 
by um, putting people in sets, by whether they're, they're, you know, how good they are at something. It's making us think in a certain way. Oh, absolutely. Children are sponges. And if you can teach them the value when they're, they're little and actually and help them see their own value as well. And, and even, as you say, when they're, they're students, you know, that getting them to see how the six capitals apply within their own life, that, that's a really amazing thing to do because it does make you think. Um, I was speaking to somebody um, the other day and he shared with me that um, one of his clients um, runs an SME up in Scotland and sorry, a small, medium-sized company in Scotland. And he's in his business. He has his business head on and his focus is on profit. And it totally contradicts his personal values. And it's actually um, impacted his health um, because of this, because it's, it's so not in line with who he is. And one of the things that you do talk about in Six Capitals is, is how, I know you use it as the corporation, but it can be any business, how it takes on its own identity. And it is almost as sometimes we people believe they have to act in a certain way when they're running in a business rather than coming from what's true to them. And the examples you've shared today are really about organizations, businesses that have um, that are coming from the heart almost it's absolutely it's what's right for them and it makes a big difference in the world that's such a fantastic example to give Lynn um, because I met so many people in so many different places small businesses big businesses corporations lawyers working with corporate law financiers everyone who had that same schizophrenic feeling of being a certain person in the values and in their heart and in their community and walking in, you know, one woman said to me who worked for a big um, global sort of investment company, I walk into the door of my business of, you know, work every day and have to put on a whole new, you know, person. I'm a different person in here. And yeah, it's that because it is a schizophrenic kind of existence yeah. and it does affect people's mental health, which obviously impacts on their physical health their ability to work and just their general well-being. You know, the brilliant um, corporate lawyer in California who helped to write the benefit corporation legislation for California um, sees the, the old-fashioned, the current corporate form as, and, you know, so he's worked with corporation startups in Silicon Valley. So he's had years of working with very successful corporations and he could see this in the people that he was working with that they would be these model citizens, they'd walk inside their business and they'd turn into profit-seeking missiles. And he said it, this form is like a poisonous, outdated form that alters the people who work in it because there's no other way of operating. You can't bring your values to these places because, I mean, you can and you'll have your heart broken, you know. Yeah, it's, that is very true. And when you're talking about that, I can... You know, if I think back to when I worked in corporate, it, it's true. You you do what you're, is expected of you within the business, or you find somewhere that works with more with your values. Well, often in a non-profit or something, because that's where you can have values. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, what steps could listeners take to help them 
build um, an organization and this is something I took from what you you talked about corporations with a conscience but it's for me it's like a a business with a conscience Um, how do you build that conscience into your DNA yeah well I mean I think two things um, come to mind first of all so many people haven't considered the way that they connect with the outside world. I mean, many people have, and I think it's a generational change, but for those who haven't, um, it's, it seems to me from having spoken to lots of businesses that the first step is to sit with your employees around a table, if that's possible, or, you know, um, depending on how big your business is to get together and just talk about the values of your business and the way that you connect to your community or don't, the way that you value your employees, the impact you're having on the environment in waste and also in more positive ways like can you change to green energy. So I think it really starts with conversations about values and about purpose and about what you care about. And then I have to say, given it's now um, a global organization, the B Corporation movement, they just have a fantastic kind of checklist of, you know, so whether or not you want to officially sign up and um, be um, certified or not, they, if you go to the B Corp website, they just have a really good checklist of different things that you consider, like your carbon emissions and, you know, how you're working with your community. So I guess it gives you a kind of checklist or, you know, the six capitals if you kind of think of your business in terms of its financial, manufactured, intellectual, human, social and natural capital. You know, these categories are vague and new and not necessarily well-defined, but some or other of them will be useful for you to start kind of breaking down the different components of your business and, and thinking about them in different ways and not only breaking them down but adding new ones into the conversation like the environment and and the bigger world beyond your business so I think I just have found from all my travels that getting people at a table and talking seems to be the beginning of creating um a healthier business and then to be considering these other things that lie outside the traditional business entity um, just seems to be the way to not only benefit them but to kind of bring us some soul back to work or to work for the first time. (laughs) I I love that. So it's almost like the first step is having the conversations but it's being clear on for me, it's actually what's the story the business wants to tell. So yeah. what's its purpose? What's yeah. the, what its values? What's the impact it wants to make? The next step's almost then looking beyond that, looking at the not just what are the resources you have available, which would be your capital, your manufacturing, your people. But then, so it's like looking internally at your resources and how you're using them, but also then looking externally and looking at the impact you're making on the world and is that the impact um and almost the legacy you want to leave um i uh i don't know if you've heard of b1g1 but i was listening to a call where one of the co-founders paul dunn was talking he puts up um you know what do you believe what does pnl mean of course to an accountant profit and loss and he's changed it he's actually it's purpose and legacy Oh, and, wow. And I, I, I love that. Yeah. So yeah. it's basically 
the more you focus on purpose and legacy, the bigger the profit and the impact you make. Yeah, wow. It, it is thinking those things through that, that actually, if you're focusing on pure profit, actually, you cannot be minimizing your impact, but minimizing the business as a whole. Yeah. Whereas if you expand to look at purpose, legacy, impact, then it opens up a lot more, the the business a lot more. Yeah, I think so. And I think um, what you're implying there is also that this is good for the bottom line, both in, you know, the number of sales you'll have and the way that you reach out into the community, but also, you know, if you start to consider your environmental and other costs, you, you know, recycling and, you know, reducing waste, you actually save money as well. So it has all sorts of financial benefits. It's, it's not just do-gooding. It's actually serious, sound business sense. And I think that's the big message that I've learned in my travels, that this is actually the only sensible way to do business in the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So it's good business sense <laughs> and the only way to do business in the 21st. And, and that's the thing. It's we have to update to the the 21st century and what's right for the 21st century. Yeah. And it doesn't mean doing business the same way um, as before. So my final question for you is what experiences have you had or stories you learned as a child that have influenced how you look at money? Um, well, obviously all the experiences I've mentioned, you know, having written double yeah. entry and then, <laughs> being launched into a world of a sort of what I call an accounting revolution. Um, but I think, well, what led me to write Double Entry was working in Venice at the Peggy Guggenheim Museum as someone interested in art and seeing the huge, you know, not the huge, at the times just being completely transfixed by the extraordinary beauty and wealth of the art in Venice, both the modern art in Peggy Guggenheim's museum and the art um, from the Renaissance. And then returning to Sydney and going to university and studying economics and accounting and realising, and with questions, you know, about... No, in fact, I did not at the time have questions about where the wealth came that made this amazing art possible. But in my first accounting lecture, I um, learned that Venice was somehow connected to the origins of double-entry bookkeeping. So then I thought, well, this is really fascinating. The place that is the kind of leader in terms of double-entry accounting, which was an innovative and revolutionary form of accounting in the 15th century in Venice, was the place where this extraordinary art happened, you know, so Florence, Milan, Venice. Yeah. So I, I, was, I became very interested in the connection between art and money and that was sort of the origin of double entry. But I think to more broadly, I grew up with a father and his two sisters. I didn't grow up with his two sisters, but they were always in conversations or on the scenes. I mean, my father's English, so um, one of them was still in England, but... Um, and one of them was in Sydney, they all studied economics. And economics was just the sort of linga franca of my father's family anyway. And so it, I just, I was never interested in money for its own purpose myself per se. Um, but I was always fascinated 
by its power on the world and the way it seemed to value things, the way it made some things possible and not others, and, and just the language of economics. It was just, you know, when I came to study economics at school, I just thought, oh, well, this is just like my second language. It seemed, you know, so it's a it's the language of public policy. It, it's a fascinating language to speak. Um, it's a dangerous language to speak, um, but it's got a lot of power to it does shape policy around the world and, and so that's probably the language that we have to change if we're going to change the world. So, yeah, so those, those it's really economics that um, was the formative language of my childhood pretty much. And then because I love art, just realising that the art was based on actual successful financial ingenuity and money-making. <laughs> And that's a, it's really interesting how, as you say, being brought up around economics, but also bringing in your, your art then led you to kind of question, well, how do these link together? Yeah. Um, and, and seeing the, the power, and I think that's always been the thing, hasn't it, that, that money has held power. Um, and it's almost one of the things that we have to change how we perceive money in that money money is a tool mm. um, to um, buy and sell. But there's too much kind of almost emotion attached. Oh, absolutely. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on and speaking to me today. I've... I've, you've really given me a lot to think of and I, I've loved the examples that you've shared in kind of from the education of children with six capitals and how it can change how they think because that's not something I thought about um, but also with the the social enterprises and it's for me it's always inspiring to see what people are doing in the world and that things are changing oh. and it's it is that knowing that if we just keep continuing to change, we will be able to move things forward and make a difference. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking me, Lynn. It's wonderful to talk to you. And also, yes, you know, what you're, you know, it's strangely hopeful story, you know, the stories that I tell in this book. Um, and they're few and far between <laughs> these days. So, you know, and I guess just going back to... Um, the benefit corporations, not to promote them so much as just to think about the, all the people who either have started their own or the ones who founded the organisation, they think of business as the most powerful tool on the planet to make change. And there's a lot to be said for that argument. And so if businesses can do good and make change, then we're so far in advance of whatever governments are doing at the moment, it seems yeah. to me. So all part of business to make yeah. change. <laughs> and I think that's a good um, place to leave it is that actually businesses can make change and it's the consolidated business, businesses together that can actually continue to make change in the world and, and everybody having their own responsibility for doing that. Mm. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Great. Lynn. That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate it. listening to this episode of every business counts if you've enjoyed this episode why not head over to our facebook group every business counts and share what you've enjoyed and your highlights 
I look forward to sharing more with you next week. Bye for now.